0: Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Some who haven't been with us for a while rejoice in you bringing them with us. Now take us to your word and help us to listen to what your spirit would say to us this morning. And may we be different as we leave for having met with you today. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the strongest positive memory that you have? Think back. it? It has to be positive, but that strongest memory, almost as if when you think about it, you're still there for me, would be the birth of my two sons. Remember the people and the location and the nervousness and the emotions. I remember a lot about that time. Now, if I would have, if I could have written a song, then wow, what a great song. Happy, hope-filled, loving, exciting. Well, today our carol, our song, is written by a first-time dad. It was written eight days after the delivery of his child. And this was just not the normal, usual birth of a child or a son. This was altogether unusual. What made it unusual? Well, first it was unusual because of the age of the parents. Both the father and the mother were well past the age that they should have been able to bear children. It was also unusual because the father was visited by an angel before it happened and was told his wife would be pregnant. That does not happen very often. It was also a totally unique pregnancy because the father literally had no voice for the whole pregnancy. I'm referring, of course, to the song or the carol of Zechariah. This is our third in a series of the carols of Christmas. Two weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah, the song of hope. And last week, Mary, the song of joy. Today, Zechariah, a song of salvation. And next week, the angels, a song of glory. The song of Zechariah. If uh, you lived in Europe in the 1700s and I told you there was a new piece of church music uh, that had been written by Johann Sebastian Bach, that wouldn't need any further explanation. You knew who Bach was and that's what he did. When you were alive in the second half of the 20th century and a new song was introduced uh, and I told you that song was by Bill Gaither, you would have understood that. You didn't need an explanation. Or if Carol were to introduce this new song next week and you saw on the bottom of the song that it was by Chris Tomlin. Again, no explanation needed. That's what he does. He writes songs. But that was not the case with Zachariah. This is Zachariah's only song. He has no history as a songwriter other than these 12 verses. He was just a country priest. So once again, just like last week, if we're going to get to know anything about this song that makes sense, we get to know we need to know something about the composer. We need to know about the historical setting and the social and spiritual circumstances, and that will help us understand the meaning of the song. So allow me to introduce Zachariah to you. If you were to turn to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, and you might as well go ahead and do that because that's where we're going to be today. Luke begins by writing to uh, Theophilus. He says, Theophilus, I've done my homework, and I've done my research, and I've interviewed all the eyewitnesses, and from the beginning until now, I am going to write in an orderly account all the things that have been accomplished and transpired among us in these days. So that's his introduction. And then in verse 5, he says, there was a priest named Zechariah. In the whole story of the gospel, the first person mentioned is this priest named Zechariah. It says he was of the division of Abijah. There were 24 divisions of priests. Abijah was the eighth division. Your division of priests served once every 24 weeks. You served for a week at a time. So we picture the temple in Jerusalem and all the priests living there. That's not true. The priest lived out in the country. We find out that uh, Zechariah lived in the hill country of Judea. And so uh, once every 24 weeks, his division would be called on to do a stint in the temple and he would travel into Jerusalem and stay at the temple. Now, there were not enough specific responsible duties, so they had to draw lots as priests to see who would get what things to do. And this particular day, the lot fell to Zechariah, and he was to offer the incense. The uh, incense was offered in the morning and the evening, every day, but this was considered such an honor that you were only permitted to offer incense once in your lifetime. And uh, Zechariah was an old man, and this was probably the highlight of his priestly career. So all the priests would go with him to the entrance to the holy place and then he alone would go into the holy place and those outside would do their preparations and he inside would be preparing to offer the incense and then they would signal and he would offer the incense and when the incense was done he would leave and that's how it was supposed to go. And as he's in there preparing to offer the incense, he turns and looks to the altar of incense and there standing beside the altar of incense was Gabriel, the archangel. And Zachariah, already nervous from what he had to do, was now greatly afraid. That was the normal response by a person who saw an angel. And the angel said, the normal response that an angel says to a person who's just seen an angel, fear not. And then in verse 13, the angel says this, Zachariah, your prayer has been answered. He doesn't say your prayers, plural. Your prayer, singular, has been answered. What prayer? We're not told. So I thought, well, maybe there's some specific memorized prayer that the priest had to offer as he was doing the incense. No, no prescribed prayer. Well, we know that he and his wife had not been able to have children, and so for... For decades, he would have been praying for a child. Maybe he was praying personally in there, but it's awful late now. She was well past childbearing years. Maybe he was praying for deliverance for Jerusalem, praying for deliverance for his people, and that was probably the best option because all priests were told to pray that daily. But it doesn't matter which prayer he was offering because the outcome was the same. According to the angel both those prayer requests are now going to come true. In verse 17 he says there will be deliverance because a Messiah is going to come. But even before that he says to him your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. Oh, how many times would Zachariah have wanted to hear that? But he had given up hope. And then the angel lists some specifics. His name will be John. He will be great before the Lord. He will drink no wine. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will be given a specific task. His task will be to turn the people's hearts to the Lord. Now catch this, in the spirit and power of Elijah, just like Elijah did. We read about this in Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4, the last two chapters in the whole Old Testament. The last time God would speak to his people for 400 years that we know of, Malachi wrote about someone coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. And now 400 years later, the very first time God addresses anybody, he's referring back to that saying, your son will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. I want you to remember that for later because we're gonna come back to it. So the angel says you're going to bear it, your wife will bear a child. And Zechariah's response is, how shall I know this? You ever heard those words before? You have to be pretty sharp, but some of you might remember. Those are the exact same words that Abram used in Genesis 15, verse 8. Abram, an old man without children, wanting to have children. God comes to him in a vision and says, Abram, count the stars. Can you do that? Count the grains of sand on the seashore. Can you do that? You're going to have children that are like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And Abram says, how shall I know this? Exact same words. What Abraham was saying is, God, what covenant, what sign will you give me to know this is true? If you read on Genesis 15, this is one of the most uh, extensive covenants. There was a heifer and a goat and a ram and a pigeon and a dove, and they were divided in half. And if you remember, Abraham has to stay away and chase the birds, stay awake and chase the birds away. This is a big covenant. Abram, in similarly difficult circumstances, were told, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But when Zachariah says, how shall I know this? He's not saying I believe, he's saying, I don't believe you. And we know this from the following verses. He says, how shall I know this? Because I am old and my wife is too old to bear children. And I love the angel's response, allow me to read. The angel Gabriel, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent, unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. It's like Gabriel looked at him and said, who do you think I am? I stand before God and you're not believing me. And because you don't believe, you will be unable to speak until all is fulfilled. I would like you to consider for a moment last week's carol, last week's song. Mary, a teenage girl, heard an impossible message from the angel, and she had every reason and every excuse not to believe. And she believed. Zechariah, a lifelong priest who had read and studied the Torah and all the Mishnah, and all of the, the documents, he, he knew it. And it says he was righteous, he had every reason to believe and all the training to believe and he didn't believe I was talking about this this week with my wife and she said might be that we are so those of us who've lived for a while think we're so ma- mature that we, we run the risk we think we know how God works we've lived so, we cannot imagine God working any way different than this and so we limit God well maybe that's what Zechariah was doing Anyway, the angel disappears. Zechariah leaves the holy place. He goes out to where the people have been kept waiting much longer and they say, what took you so long? And Zechariah can't speak. It's interesting that he stayed there for a whole week. He finished his service as a priest for that week, but all through that week he could not speak. He had to use a tablet. When that week is up, he returns home to his wife Elizabeth. Now he has lots of things to tell Elizabeth And Elizabeth would have tons of questions, but Zachariah can't talk. And then Elizabeth gets pregnant, and she says, my reproach is removed. What was she saying in that day, in that culture, if you were not able to bear children? It was viewed, wrongly so, but it was viewed as a curse from God. And she said, now that I'm pregnant, my reproach has been removed, but Zachariah couldn't talk. And friends and family come to visit, especially a niece named Mary. And Mary's also pregnant, and the wife Elizabeth makes this grand pronouncement about Mary's child being her Lord. But Zachariah can't talk. Mary stays for three months, and he comes to realize that the baby inside Mary is gonna be the Messiah, and the baby inside his wife is gonna be the messenger for the Messiah. There is so much he would wanna say, but Zachariah can't talk. And finally, Elizabeth delivers a son. And eight days later, a very important time, the time for the child to be named, and many people came and gathered. This is a a big deal, especially if it's your number one child and we're going to name the child and that means something. Certainly, everybody was expecting this is gonna be Zachariah Jr. And she says, nope, his name's gonna be John. Why John, they say. You don't even have any relatives named John. Certainly, Elizabeth, you've made a mistake. Let's ask dad. He'll straighten things out. But Zachariah can't talk. And so he writes on a tablet. His name shall be called John. And you're there watching. And it says immediately. His tongue was loosed and his mouth opened. What a crazy crazy time this solemn occasion would have just gone wild the people they recognize that they've seen the first miracle of their life and they're excited to see a miracle but if you see a miracle you're afraid and you're fearful and they talked among themselves and they probably gossiped and they wondered notice what it says what will this child be it doesn't say who will this child be they asked what will this child be or if you were Zachariah imagine his thoughts and as he's thinking, like Elizabeth before him, it says he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he speaks this carol and he prophesies. That's Zachariah. Now, I know it's pretty far into the sermon time, but we're now going to read the passage for today. So as you're able, please stand and let's hear this carol of Zechariah, beginning with verse 67. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Please be seated. Two preliminary observations before we really break down these verses. First observation, in some ways this carol, this song is not what we'd expect. We'd expect Zechariah to say, I've got my voice back. I've been mute for almost a whole year. Praise God, my voice is back. But he doesn't say that. Or we'd expect him to say, I've got a son and that son is great before the Lord. Come and rejoice with me. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he doesn't even mention his son for eight verses. He mentions someone else's son. And when he gets to his son, it's only briefly. He says, praise God, my son is a number two kind of a guy. He's a messenger for another. He's to point to another. He's, uh, he's preparation for the Messiah. That's not the carol I would have expected. But in other ways, this carol is exactly what we would expect from a priest. There's lots of theology in this carol. Listen to these rich words. These words are loaded with meaning and they're all found in this carol. Redeemed, horn of salvation, saved, mercy, covenant, delivered, holiness, righteousness, forgiveness, light in the darkness, the way of peace. This is the beginning of a systematic theology text. Grudem would be proud. This is no light, shallow Christmas carol. This is deep with meaning, just like we'd expect from a priest. But it also, in these 12 verses, there are at least 14 Old Testament references or allusions. 14 in 12 verses. Now, I'm not going to go into detail today about either the theology or the Old Testament references, but I want us to know that This is a loaded, loaded carol. We're going to look at this carol under two simple headings plus one interruption in the middle. The first heading, the promise of salvation. Let's summarize what Zachariah said. He said, God has redeemed his people. God has raised up a horn of salvation and God did this so that we might be saved so that we are being delivered, so that we can be forgiveness, so that we can have forgiveness of sins. And so it's easy to see why this is called Carol of Salvation. The central issue certainly is salvation and rescue. I have a question, what is salvation? I would argue that for salvation to exist, there must be two necessary parts. For salvation to exist, there must be one party with great need, in danger, and unable to rescue themselves. If I was on the Titanic and the Titanic went down and I didn't have a life preserver and I couldn't swim, I would be the party in great need. I'm in the water and I can't swim and I'm going to drown For salvation to exist, the second party must appear. A second party has the solution to the need, and then they have to apply that solution to the situation. So if you happen to be passing by in a lifeboat and you could throw me a life preserver, you would be giving me salvation. I have a need, I'm in danger, I'm unable to rescue myself. Party number two can provide the solution and rescue. If you admit either of those two parts, salvation doesn't take place. If the Titanic never sinks, I don't need to be saved. Or if the Titanic sinks and I'm in the water and you're not there to save me, I will drown and there's no salvation. So what about this song of Zechariah? Are both parts of this salvation there? Well, Zachariah firstly, certainly understood the first part. He understood the great need. All he had to do was look around. He lived it. There was political oppression. Rome was the fourth different oppressing nation that the Jews had had in the last 400 years. No one alive in the Jewish land at that time would have remembered anything different. They were always oppressed. There was physical hardship, this thing they called the promised land, which certainly didn't seem like it was a land flowing with milk and honey to them. For them, it was day-to-day survival, and that was just tough. They lived in economic poverty. They had little income and the income that they had was taken by a heavy tax burden. But more than any of these, their biggest need was their spiritual lostness because as you study Jewish history, it tells us that from the time of 400 BC to the time Christ, there was a huge moral vacuum in Jerusalem. And the Jewish Religious leaders, rather than being the solution, were the cause, and they were leading people to wickedness. And so, Zachariah lived with these priests that were leading the people to wickedness, and he knew there would be no rescue from them. So he certainly saw the great need, but Zachariah also knew God's promises. He knew of God's provision, but God hadn't been heard from for four hundred years, and patience was gone. But now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and following the birth of his son, he prophesied. And he prophesied things in the past tense as if it's already accomplished. He said, verse 68, we have been redeemed. We have been bought back from slavery, bought out of slavery. We've been redeemed so that we could be saved from our enemies, verse 71. We can be saved from those who hate us, We have been redeemed so that we can be delivered from their hand, verse 74, and we no longer need to fear. So as we read Zechariah's song, we see that both parts of salvation are present. Someone with a great need and someone able to meet that need. Are both parts of salvation still present today? Do we have a need? (laughs) Silly question. Yes, we have a need, we are lost, we are controlled by forces outside of our power, politically, personally, and economically, yes, but even more spiritually. Spiritually, we are in a world that is blind and in darkness, and we have pain and hardship. What I just said about the condition of our world is true, but that truth is often hidden. The world would tell us that you don't need saving. You have no need so big that you can't fix it. Just dig deeper, try harder, find hope in the future. You really don't need rescuing, things will get better. And you know what, that's an enticing message. But don't believe it. You've heard the illustration, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Just try to picture that for a second, does that work? If you pull one foot out, the other one goes deeper. It's ludicrous. Our need for salvation as a country, as a group, as individuals, has never been greater. And Zachariah's song could have been written for us because it also gives us the solution for our great need. It says, God has visited us. God took on human form. Now we all know that because that's Jesus. Jesus. And it says, God has redeemed us. He's paid the price to buy us back. He did that through the death of his son, who lived a perfect life so that he didn't deserve to die. And he died for you and for me. And God, in his mercy, offers to save us and deliver us and forgive us and live a life without fear. And you say, Kevin, hold on. I thought this was a Christmas carol. That sounds more like Good Friday and Easter. And guess what? You're right. Because the truth is, they're the same song. The baby in the manger is the savior on the cross. And Zechariah gets it. While his song might not be what we expect, it's even better. It's about the Messiah first. It's about salvation first. It's about God meeting our needs first. And then he gets to his son, John. And here's the interruption. He, he doesn't want to get, forget about God's provision to him personally. So he says, well, how will John fit in? Look at verses 76 and 77. As if speaking to his own son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Zachariah rightly understands that his son would be great, but only because of Jesus. John, you will be a prophet. That is, you will get the message out. John, you will be a preparer. You will go before him to get things ready. John, you will be a preacher. You will give them the knowledge of salvation that comes through forgiveness. And so we would say to Zechariah in these two verses, yes, Zechariah, be excited about your son. Brag about your son. His place and message are important, even critical, and history would prove him right. But then Zechariah goes on to end his song. We've seen that his carol was a promise of salvation, but it also shows us the pathway to, to peace and here's where we will end the last two verses because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace more than anything else at that time what the Jews wanted was peace They had been trained ever since they were a small child from the words of the psalmist, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And for generations, they had prayed for that peace. And Zechariah now addresses that. Remember earlier in the sermon, I said there were 14 allusions to the Old Testament. We're gonna look at one here. Remember also that I said the angel referred back to Elijah from the book of Malachi. Let's look at that one. Malachi chapter 3, second to last chapter in the Old Testament, verse 1 says this, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That prophecy was being fulfilled in John, Zechariah's son. Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter in the Old Testament, verse 5 Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. That prophecy was being fulfilled by Zechariah's son, John, who was a prophet and would prepare the way. Now, in between these two prophecies, verse three, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 5, is the prophecy that Zechariah alludes to in verse 78. In verse 78, he says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, says this. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Brad, I don't know if you know it, but the song that you sang at the beginning was straight out of this. Beautiful Savior, but you shall see the sun rise. The sun, S-U-N, of righteousness shall rise. Jesus, the Messiah, would be that bright sun. We know this. That sun would provide light for those who sit in darkness. That sun would provide hope for those who are in the shadow of death. That sun would guide the feet into the path of peace and bring health and healing and wholeness for that's what peace means to the people that were there. That the sun of righteousness shall rise is great, great news. It's happy news. And for us, If there was ever a time we needed peace, it's today. For today, armies are warring in many places in this world. Governments are arguing. Leaders are accusing. Politicians are blaming. Families are disintegrating. Husbands and wives are splitting. Parents and children are fighting. We divide over race, over gender, over age, over politics, over personal preferences. And too often in our society, there's no peace, there's no wholeness. Rather, there is brokenness. And today, we need healing. And into that landscape, Jesus, the Son of Righteousness, comes. And gives light and hope and guidance and peace. What a great place to stop this sermon if we want to ignore a verse. You see, I purposefully skipped Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. To get the context that this is written in, Malachi 4, verse one and two together says this, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will be, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Zacharias Carroll said the sunrise shall visit us and we all know today that that's referring to Jesus the Messiah who offers to us salvation and healing and peace but he's also the burning sun that leaves nothing behind. And the difference is there are those who fear the name of the Lord and there are those who are arrogant and evildoers, according to Malachi. And so, this morning, I have to remind us, we have a decision to make or a decision that we've already made. And it is not a decision we can afford to get wrong. Jesus, this baby of Christmas, this one that the carols are written of, he comes and he offers salvation. Will we take it? If we ignore or neglect or reject that salvation, well, we just can't. So the carols of Christmas are full of hope, like Isaiah's. They're full of joy, like Mary's. They're full of glory, like the angels will be next week. But these carols of Christmas are not to be taken lightly. They are deadly serious. Zechariah offers us a song of salvation. We dare not refuse it. Let's pray. Dear God, as we sing the Christmas carols, so many of them transition so well from the baby in a manger is the one who came to reconcile us with God. Remind us of that this week. For those of us who have trusted in you, who love you, remind us of that often so that we rejoice in the true meaning of Christmas. But for those of us who need to be reminded that the sun that brings life also burns. Help us to think wisely and to make the right decision today so that you can be our peace. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.